today uh, we'll continue in chapter 3. Last week we started chapter 3 and we're going to continue and finish off the rest of chapter 3. Uh, we covered the beginning of the chapter, uh, the chapter verses 1 through 12. Uh, today we'll finish the chapter starting from verses, verse 13 all the way through 35. So if you have your Bible, you can just leave it open there. Uh, again, it's Proverbs 3, 13 through 35. And I'll start by asking the question, or a question, for the sake of provoking some thought uh, on today's passage. And the question is, what do you value most in your life? Uh, If you were asked to give up everything you have, except for one thing, what would you choose? Uh, Maybe you thought about what, what you'd do if your house was on fire, and you only had a few minutes to go in and grab what was most valuable to you. I've thought about that. Or if you knew you had 24 hours to live, for example, uh, how would you spend that time? And how would your mind change regarding your material possessions if you knew that tomorrow was your last day? Would you have any regrets on how you use your time or energy throughout your life? Um, These are all questions to help you think through uh, the question of what do you value most in your life? Today's section uh, in Proverbs tells us that our relationship with God and His divine wisdom should be at the very top of our list of the things we value most. In fact, I'd go beyond that and say it is, it should be our single passion in life. Um, And and we're going to see how that uh, is pulled from the passage that we have today. So let's go ahead and read it. It's Proverbs 3. Verses 13 through 35. Can someone read that? Uh, it's okay. Thank you. Now, uh, this is a lengthy section, uh, so consider this somewhat of an overview, really. It would be difficult to go through each verse in every detail. But I want to make sure that you get the core message of the section. Uh, And let's start by looking at verse 13. It says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Here, uh, divine wisdom is portrayed as a hidden treasure you should seek after with the same dedication as men would seek for treasure of the earth. Yet we should have far more enthusiasm, obviously, for securing and cherishing the divine wisdom of God. Now, living in a world in which men are oftentimes engaged in the all-absorbing pursuit of material riches, we're instructed to seek after divine wisdom 
And I would say for three reasons that we see there in that passage. Verse 14 shows us that divine wisdom is better than silver and gold. The wisdom is better than wealth. Uh, and, and how many of us have seen rich, foolish people? Um, so wisdom is better than silver and gold. Uh, number two, divine wisdom is more precious than jewels. You see that in verse 15, same, co- same concept. And then three, uh, that nothing can compare in value to divine wisdom. So apparently what's being communicated here is that divine wisdom is uh, the greatest treasure. And how is it that divine wisdom is more precious and more valuable than the riches of the world? Well, reasons are given in verses 16 through 18. We see long life is in her right hand. You cannot buy life with all the money in the world. But the divine wisdom of God offers you long life. You see how that goes? You can't go buy long life. I mean, you can try. But it's wisdom and the wisdom of God that uh, we see in these passages that extend our life. And this is, again, this is a general truth. This isn't a truth... um, Absolute, in the sense that uh, if you have wisdom, uh, you're invincible, right? You, you can get shot, someone can shoot you, and just because you have wisdom, you, you might die that moment. <laughs> so it's not, it's, not one, it's, it's not to be interpreted in that way. But wisdom does, uh, have, it does have temporal effects. It does have earthly effects. And we see that long life is in her right hand. And note, long life in the promised land of Canaan, this is considering how it was understood in the Old Testament. Uh, Long life in the promised land of Canaan was the Old Testament form of covenant blessing. Um, It was something something that was considered a blessing, especially in the Old Testament, uh, when you were promised long life. Uh, and I would say as it, translate into, as it transfers into the New Testament, um, we see that eternal life is the, the fulfillment of that or the fruition of that. Then it goes on to say, in her left hand are riches and honor. And so according to the scriptures, when you make riches your number one priority, you do that at the expense of your soul. So again, the pursuit of riches uh, is not where the blessing is. It's the pursuit of wisdom, right? And so when you, when you turn, we switch those roles, uh, the outcome changes, right? It says uh, in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, you see it says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, when you value the wisdom of God above that and above everything else, there are passages in scriptures that say you gain the whole world. See this in Psalm 84, 11, 12. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly? O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. No good thing, it says, does he withhold. Then uh, Ecclesiastes 2.26 tells us, For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. And so, in other words, the one who is not following the wisdom of God, not following God himself, he's still toiling and working just like the one who is following God, except that, that the world is his. The world is the Christians. And the world is not the sinner's. What God, in the end, will give, he will give to the believer. And again, it's not by virtue of anything within ourselves. It's by virtue of our union with Christ. That God has given everything to Christ. And all that belongs to us 
by union, uh, by virtue of our union with with, uh, with Christ. And so we apply what we read in Ecclesiastes that. Uh, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given them the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. Then we have Ephesians 1.3, which says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so Proverbs goes on to say of divine wisdom, it says, Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Now, the riches of the world cannot buy you peace. Again, you see, if you reverse that, it messes everything up. The riches of the world can't buy you peace, uh, and unfortunately, they are oftentimes sought after and secured at the expense of those priceless spiritual blessings. And we understand this from 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, which we just read. But divine wisdom will lead you into the pleasant blessings of God and cause you to walk with God, and that's where we gain our peace. That's pretty clear. We see in Psalm 119, 165, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Then Isaiah 48, 18, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. And then we read on in our main text, verse 18, wisdom is described as a tree of life to those who lay hold of her, those who hold her, hold her fast and are called blessed. Uh, and I'd say this is probably not a specific allusion to the tree of life that we read about in Genesis 2, although the author would have known about it. Uh, in the literature of the time, the flourishing tree was a common figure for continual blessing, right? A tree that was by the river. It was constantly being uh, watered. It was constantly being nourished, and it was constantly bearing fruit. It's a living tree. And uh, again, the flourishing tree was a common figure for continual blessing. And the metaphor is brought up again uh, in the same book in Proverbs. You see that in uh, chapter 11, chapter 13, and chapter 15. It's a, it's a big theme. <clears throat> but more important is the theme of life itself in Proverbs, right? And life in the Bible is always linked not to money, not to anything temporal, life and the flourishing of life is always linked to our relationship with God. Uh, disruption to life, on the contrary, uh, disruption to a life-giving relationship with God is what leads to death. And this is the foundational concern in Proverbs, right? The Lord Jesus makes this promise. Uh, we see this in Revelation 2.7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So just sort of a connection there with that. I don't know if it's a, uh, it's a reference to that in any sense. I don't think so. Uh, but you see the, illust the, the illustration of the tree of life where we see in Genesis. There, uh, it's sort of like a bookend. We see that in the beginning and we see that in the end. Um, and, and again, it's just the pointer to this sealing of an everlasting life. Uh, and again, this is, this is a benefit for those who are uh, in Christ or in the wisdom of God. Moving along, we read in verses 22, the same, same chapter that we're on in our main text, verses 23 to 26, uh, we read uh, that further benefits and blessings are to be gained from this divine wisdom. You see in verse 22, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. So the wisdom of God will be a source of spiritual life to you and will adorn your life with beauty of godliness, right? Which uh, we see in 1 Peter 3, 4, that wisdom is uh, beauty, right? It's beauty, it's the beauty of godliness upon you. Uh, you see in 1 Peter 3, 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, right? This is the wisdom that's kept within, within your mind, within your heart. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty 
of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is which in God's sight is very precious. So again, wisdom adorns a person. And then verse 23 in our main text. It reads, Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. Now, not to toot your own horn, but have you ever thought of a time where you walked in wisdom? And again, I'm I'm not trying to make you boast in yourself, but do you remember a time where you felt that you walked in wisdom during a specific time in your life? Maybe it was a, a thing going on at your job, and you walked in wisdom. There is... Regardless of the response, right, whether people praised you for your wisdom or didn't even acknowledge your wisdom in a, a specific situation in your life, there is, in a sense, uh, a sense of security there when you follow God's law, when you walk in wisdom, that regardless of the response externally and the way that people respond to you and how you acted in wisdom, whether you get praised or not, you still, you still feel like it was worth it you still feel secure because you're walking with God. Again, verse 23 reads, Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. And by this, we understand that the wisdom of God will guide you through your life and lead you securely, not only in a temporal way, right? But the wisdom will also lead us in the way of Christ, which is the way that leads to eternal life. Uh, and note the promise that we read here in Psalm 32, uh, 8. I don't think I got it up here. All right, I'll read it. Psalm 32, 8. Notice the promise that we read here. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Then, uh, I think this, that description should inform how we read and understand verses 24 and 26 in our main text, where it says, if you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, you, your sleep will be sweet. And this goes back to walking in wisdom. Do you recall a time when, when regardless of the outcome of the situation, you remained faithful and you walked with God, you, you, you walked according to his law and, and according to his wisdom, you sleep better at night. And not to be so overly simplistic, but there is a confidence there, right? That regardless of the outcome, I'm with the Lord. So it says here, when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. I'm a father. I have three kids, and they're all little. That, that sounds great. It's been a while since my, <laughs> my sleep has been sweet. They're good kids. I'm playing. Then it says, do not be afraid. This is verse 25. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Again, how many times have you been in, in some sort of conflict with someone or some sort of issue? And when, when you humble yourself and you walk with the Lord and keep his statutes in the midst of that trial, fear, in a sense, goes away. Now, this is not all the time, but for the most part, fear goes away. There's no terror. Uh, terror of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. You're confident in God because it's better to walk with God and his wisdom. It says, for the Lord will be, the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. And the promise here is that of the protective presence of the Lord. A promise that I think is reiterated in passages like Psalm 91, Psalm 46, 2 Timothy 4. In fact, we can look at them. Can someone read Psalm 91, 4? He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. And someone read uh, Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength and very present help. Yes, and uh, 2 Timothy 4, 17a and verse 18. It's all together there. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all 
Hmm. And then, uh, oh, I don't have that second part, uh, which is verse 18. I'll read. It says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so what we get from this is that when you cherish and heed divine wisdom, it should lead you to have confidence and trust in the Lord and have less fear, right? When sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked, when it comes. And although the Proverbs seems to be making a very unlikely promise, like in every situation, you're not going to have fear. But we must view this beyond the temporal. We have to also view these promises uh, in, in an ultimate sense, right? Consider how we as Christians are being kept by God. So even, even when we fail in walking in God's law, in God's way, in God's wisdom, uh, the Lord is protecting us from our ultimate enemy, right? The devil. He's protecting us from ultimate spiritual ruin. So it still applies, right? And this is the blessing of, for those who are in Christ. Those outside of Christ... Uh, they, don't, they don't have this blessing. He's preserving us until the last day. All of this we have in Christ. He is the assurance that the Lord, uh, the Lord will protect you and cause you to stand on that day of judgment, right? On that day, the ungodly will say to the mountains and to the rocks, we read this in Revelation 6, they're going to be calling the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so as we speak about the ultimate uh, sort of sense of confidence and ultimate protection and security in an ultimate sense, unbelievers don't have that. And we see in Revelation that even on the last day, they're going to be calling the mountains to fall on them, uh, to protect them from Almighty God. And so they don't have that that trust that confidence that that we have in Christ. Now, in contrast to the ungodly, the redeemed are enabled to stand in the presence of the Lord on the day of final judgment. We read in Revelation 7, 9 uh, and verse 14. I'm going to read that whole portion. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is the reason why we value divine wisdom. The Spirit has caused us to do so. But we do so because uh, we we see that divine wisdom, the outcome of that in an ultimate sense, uh, has led us to Christ and in Christ has led us to uh, being confident in the Lord, even on that final day. Now we should value divine wisdom, which is the revelation of the mind and the will of God as it's made known in scriptures in the person of the Lord Jesus because of what it has to offer, namely this ultimate salvation. If wisdom is followed consistently in every way, it would lead us to the knowledge of our need for Christ. And then in Christ it would lead us to a life that, Im- that models Christ in every way. Christ being the, uh, the perfect embodiment of the wisdom of God. Divine wisdom would lead us into salvation. It would lead us to, uh, to repent, to turn, to trust in Christ, uh, being that that is the ultimate expression of, uh, let's say, uh, choosing the wise, wise, the wise path. Now, does, does making a spiritual and Christological connection to the Proverbs remove its historical significance from the people of Israel at the time it was written and read initially? In other words, you you see the way that I'm tying everything to Jesus, the way that I'm tying everything to uh, Christ as the fulfillment and the embodiment of divine wisdom. Does that do away with the sort of practical wisdom that we see in the Proverbs? No, I don't think so. The temporal blessings received 
by following the wisdom in the Proverbs is an important factor. And it was for Israel and it is for us today. Uh, there are general truths that are revealed um, or that reveal the wisdom of God and how he has designed all things to work. However, we must not read them without overlooking that there is a fascinating connection between the presentation of wisdom in the opening chapters of Proverbs, the way that, uh, the way that wisdom is described there in the beginning of Proverbs, and the way that Jesus is described in the New Testament. Okay? Note, for instance, that just as wisdom promises, right, I will pour out my spirit upon you, I will make known my words to you. You read this in Proverbs 1.23. This is wisdom saying, I will pour out my spirit. I will make known my words to you. You see something very similar with Jesus, right? Uh, he makes those same promises in John 14, 26, and also in John 20, uh, verses 21 through 22. So I'll show you the, the, uh, the one in John. Let's see here. Okay, I don't have it up there, but um, if you turn to John 20, verses 21 through 22. And again, as we read it, I want you to see how the way wisdom is described in the beginning of Proverbs, and even further on throughout Proverbs, and the way Jesus is talked about, it's very similar. So again, uh, going back, Proverbs 1.23 said, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make known my words to you. And then look at that passage in John 20, verses 21 through 22. It says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so keep, keep your finger there. And then we also have an invitation from wisdom itself, which we read in Proverbs 9, uh, 4 through 5. I'm going to put that one up here. Proverbs 9, 4 through 5, it says, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. It's sort of an invitation by wisdom. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. This is wisdom talking. Now look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Notice the similarities in the language. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's this call from the simple to come. Now, this doesn't mean that the wisdom of Proverbs is some sort of Old Testament manifestation of Christ, right? Like some theophany. That's not what I'm saying. But it does appear that it might well be an Old Testament representation of Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ being the second Adam, the exact imprint of the divine nature of God himself, is God's wisdom himself in the flesh, Consider uh, another comparison between uh, Proverbs 8.22 uh, through 31, you can read. Uh, but let's just look at verse 32 and what the New Testament reveals to us about the Son of God. Uh, Proverbs 8.22, look what it says. It says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Okay, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. This is talking about wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first acts of old. And I think uh, this statement should be interpreted in conjunction with Proverbs 8, 24, where it says, When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there was no spring abounding with water. And so the point here is that wisdom was there in the beginning. Right? Wisdom was brought forth by God before the creation. And if you, remember, if you remember through the New Testament, we see the same language with Jesus and the Father. Right? Uh, I don't have it up here, but John 16, 27 says, I, Jesus, came forth from the Father. 
John 16, 28 says, I came from the Father, right? John 8, 24, I'm sorry, John 8, uh, 42, I came from the Father. And some verses, some versions say, I came forth and have come from God. Uh, John 1, 18, we also read where Jesus is identified as being the one and only Son who is, who is at the right, uh, excuse me, who is at the Father's side, right? Jesus is there at the Father's side. And also in Proverbs 8, 23, we read, ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. And this is talking about wisdom. So again, very similar language with wisdom and the person of Christ. Uh, the Hebrew word there, uh, translated as set up, has the meaning uh, to appoint to a royal position, basically. Uh, in Hebrew, or in the Hebrew usage of the term, passes over the meaning of pouring out or to that of placing uh, and appointing. It's, it's a big range of, of meaning. But Jewish interpreters saw that what was meant by the term was a placing of, some, of someone in a position of princely dignity. And so what Proverbs 8.23 is telling us is that wisdom always occup occupied an exalted royal position with, with the Lord. It, wisdom was held high from God himself. Um, and also we read from the New Testament about Jesus in John 17, 5, uh, right before being crucified. Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So it's very, you see, wisdom is being spoken a very, in, in, in a very similar fashion as uh, the second person of the Trinity. Uh, uh, yeah, that was uh, John 17, verse 5. And then speaking of uh, Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul declares, he says this, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see that in Philippians 2, 6. And so the Greek phrase there translated to regard something as a thing to be exploited. Right? It has the meaning of, of possessing something that may have been exploited for one's own benefit. And so Philippians 2, 6 is telling us that. Christ Jesus always possessed the position of equality with God the Father, but despite his divine rights, he willingly underwent the incarnation for our salvation. Uh, so in Proverbs 8.27, listen to, how, to what divine wisdom declares about itself. Okay, listen to this. It says, when he established the heavens, actually I would say turn there, I don't have it up there, but turn to Proverbs 8.27. 27. And look at how divine wisdom speaks about itself. It says, when he established the heavens, I, which is wisdom, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. See that? So, wisdom was present with God at the time of creation, uh, or what the Bible calls the beginning. And so once again, uh, you, you, you see that connection there. Uh, I'm thinking of John 1, uh, 1 through 12, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, uh, which is a, a title for the incarnate Son of God. Uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And we look at uh, Proverbs 8, 27 through 30. This is when he established the heavens, I, wisdom, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made, the firm, uh, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. And it's talking about wisdom there. Very similar to how Jesus is described. So wisdom is portrayed as being actively involved with the Lord in his work of creation. And once again, keep in mind also um, what John 1, 3 says, referring to Christ Jesus. We're told all things were made through him. And looking at this passage, all things were made through wisdom. 
Colossians 1.16, which says that by him, Jesus Christ, were all things made. And then Hebrews 1.2 tells us, uh, he has spoken to us by his son, through whom he made the universe. So wisdom is spoken that way. So wisdom is an appropriate representation of the son. Because just as wisdom is the revelation of the mind of God, so the Son, as the Word of God, brings to man the ultimate revelation of the mind of God. Describing wisdom's relation to mankind, we conclude theologically that wisdom, wisdom himself, entered the earth and came to mankind and continues to sustain all things. And yet, even after the fall, we see that wisdom has placed his love to the earth for the sake of man. And he also discloses the mind of God to us. And when we receive this wisdom, the very wisdom of God, it can bring us back to God. So in the ultimate sense, this is the work of Christ, the Son of God, the manifestation, the incarnation of wisdom itself. You see, um, we see him declare in John 12, 46, and also uh, verses 49 and 50. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And it says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. Jesus was the very words of God, the mind of God himself. It says, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. And what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that that would probably be a good summary of it. Uh, God being the, uh, I'm sorry, Christ being the word of God. Um, And in that is... The mind of God, uh, the will of God, he, G- Jesus Christ is the incarnation of that. And so in many ways, not only in his verbal communication, but in his very life, what was communicated to us was the will of God. And uh, the way that we gain insight in the will of God, again, is through, uh, through Christ. So Christ being considered the wisdom of God himself. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, wisdom... For what wisdom is, uh, can be distinct from the person and work of Christ, right? Jesus Christ is an actual historical person. Uh, And so you can see that uh, as we talk about wisdom and as we talk about Christ, there are ways of talking about them differently. But I think a practical implication to all of this that I'm saying is that as you read the wisdom in Proverbs you're reading character traits of Christ, right? You're seeing the wisdom that's being revealed there. It's giving you a description of how Jesus himself was. And I think that's exciting. You get a portrait of the perfection of Christ, the wisdom of Christ, uh, the, uh, just, just all these things that we gain from Proverbs. It helps us to shape how Jesus Christ was because if, if, if wisdom is of God, and, then, and we can rightly say that Jesus Christ is uh, a representation, a perfect representation of wisdom. Um, and so it, I think that's one of the practical implications of, of reading Proverbs is that we get an insight of the character of how Jesus was and how, how he walked. Uh, and, and I would even say that uh, if you want to be conformed into the image of Christ, if you want to start looking like Jesus in your, in your actions every day, Read Proverbs and see the wisdom that's there and walk in that wisdom. And you're going to see how you're going to look more like Christ. So, anyway, uh, moving along. Uh, We get to verses uh, 27 through 32. You see, I'm just sort of putting it together and summarizing it just for the sake of time. And considering those verses, um, in John 14 the Lord Jesus speaks these words. He says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him 
and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. So with that in mind, we demonstrate that we value divine wisdom when we heed to God's commandments and obey its counsels. Uh, and in those closing verses, right, verses 27 through 32, uh, we're provided with what I would consider a sampling of the commandments and counsel of divine wisdom itself. Uh, what you see, for example, let's just say verse 27, we see uh, this call of practicing generosity, kindness, and mercy. Uh, in verse 28, we have uh, this command to practice integrity and honor by making prompt payment of debts and wages and other kinds of obligations. So this is sort of a, uh, a more practical way of, uh, of showing us how divine wisdom looks like in everyday life. Uh, verse 29 tells us to practice love towards our neighbor by refraining from taking advantage of our neighbor. Then we see in verse 30 that as much as possible we are to seek to live in peace and do not be the instigator or strife uh, or the, or the per, uh, a person who starts strife or a person who's contentious. You kind of get that from verse 30. And then those, the last two verses, 31 and 32, uh, there's this command to not envy or uh, imitate the ruthless but that we ought to remember that uh, the upright, those, those who are walking with God, enjoy the friendship of God. And so we ought to protect that and guard that. And so with, with those verses there, uh, I think it informs us that we should value divine wisdom by taking heed to its counsel and obeying its commands. And I'm immediately reminded of James 1.22 and also verse 25 where it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. It's telling us that it, it's deception, essentially, when you uh, pretend to walk with God but not do what he commands. And then verse 25 there tells us, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, per and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." So it's a good, good reminder of that. And we see wisdom in that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's going to take crazy. It's okay. If you, wisdom has to do with the discernment to act righteously, right? Sure, so yeah, I think it's a good uh, uh, summary. Is that to say that uh, every decision has a moral aspect or the other way around? No, I, I well... I think there's a lot connected to that, but just to answer that question, I would say absolutely. In other words, there, I don't think there's neutrality in our decision-making. Uh, I, think, I think that everything you do, um, wh whether you, you make those or you do those things or you take those actions mindlessly, let's just say you, you don't think too much about it, but you just do stuff you're still held responsible to it in some way, shape, or form. And so there is, in a sense, a moral decision behind your actions, even when you, you're not really thinking too deep about it. Uh, and, and we can conclude that if you're not thinking too deep about it, maybe the moral issue there is that you're neglecting to consider your, the implications and the uh, results that could come from those, act those actions, even if they're small little steps. Now, I'm not saying that we need to walk paranoid. Thank God, thank, thank God for his grace that we're able to walk in the sense of freedom. But I don't think it's, there's neutrality there. I think that everything that we do uh, is, is to some degree a moral decision. And so this is the reason why we have to constantly be in our word uh, and, and let it renew our minds for, for the goal of um, walking in godliness almost as if it was second nature. That when the time of testing comes, that you would, you would, you would, it would prove that you are uh, walking in righteousness. Now, again, this is not legalism. Um, these are 
these are privileges that we get in Christ. Um, and, and Jesus Christ himself, through his spirit, empowers us to walk in holiness. Uh, but again, to answer your question, I don't think anything that we do is morally neutral. Um, just my thoughts, <laughs> uh, for what it's worth. Yeah, so in conclusion, uh, this passage that, that we spoke of, uh, verses 13 through 35, concludes by telling us that if we desire the friendship of the Lord, which we read in verse 32, and the blessing of the Lord, which we read in verse 33, and the grace of the Lord, which we see in verse 34, and if we desire to inherit the glory of the Lord, which we see in verse 35, we need to, de- we need to value divine wisdom. Don't look at divine wisdom and following its ways as legalism. This, this, this is a privilege. We need, to be, we need to look at it and be encouraged and, and have that desire to walk in the ways of the Lord and not see that as legalism. It's a blessing to be able to have before us the revelation of God's will and that his spirit has, has given us a heart to desire that. And so, um, again, this divine wisdom is nothing other than the revelation of the mind and the will of God as it is made known to us in the scriptures and exemplified in the very person uh, of, of Christ himself. And so, uh, I get the, the call would be that we value divine wisdom as we would value our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read and heed to its wisdom, my prayer is that, um, that it would be a picture of who Jesus was to us. Um, and, and that we would uh, cherish divine wisdom as we would cherish God himself, uh, being that it is the very mind and will of God. Any, any other final thoughts or questions? Yeah, Pito. I was thinking about that too. Yeah. Christ, yeah. You can see that in Proverbs a bit easier. Yes.
Yes. Yes. Amen. Yeah, and that's a very important, uh, I would say, her- hermeneutical principle. Um, yeah, and I, it, what, as you were talking, it just reminded me um, of, of an important um, an important thing that, that we need to keep in mind. If the Proverbs, or if any Old Testament um, book, if it's preached and there's a Muslim or a, an Orthodox Jew in the back row of your church, and he's amening everything you say, you know, well, praise God, on, on, in one sense, praise God that he's amening it. But on the other hand, there's something wrong there. Because if a sermon or a teaching can be preached or taught, uh, and a, a Muslim could amen it, because who wouldn't uh, say amen to just the profound wisdom that's found in uh, Proverbs? And there's no, there's no uh, Christ as the scope of it, at least. Because you can abuse it. You can see Christ in every bush and every rock. <laughs> and I think that's a bad thing. Uh, you're misinterpreting passages in the Old Testament when you see Jesus everywhere. And of course, I would say it's better to see him everywhere than to miss where he actually is. But at the same time, to be faithful to the text, when you're preaching and, and reading and, and thinking through the Old Testament, if a Muslim or someone who, who rejects Christ can totally amen what you're saying, you need to kind of reconsider um, what its point or at least what its scope is. And it's, it, it has to be Christ. And so there's something, uh, there, there is application to the immediate audience, but there's also um, a theological um, scope in all of Scripture, uh, which is Jesus Christ. As we read in the New Testament, where Christ himself says that all things were by him, for him, through him. In other words, everything was meant to point to him. So, anyway, good comment, Vito. Let me go ahead and uh, close out for the sake of time. Our Father, as you have shown us, Lord, through these passages, the instruction from the Father to the Son in Proverbs 3, which is a call to value divine wisdom that comes from you. Father, I pray that we would seek after this wisdom and value it as well. And may we prize it highly, as you say in uh, chapter 4. May you conform us more into its likeness. So. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.